Hi everyone, it's Mark Bennett speaking here from ANZ uh, Agribusiness. Welcome to our winter edition of ANZ Agri Commodity Insights. I'm joined today by Michael Whitehead, Adelaide Timbrell and Elena Barrett and we're looking forward to talking of the new season, uh, covering commodities, um, some inputs as well, a, a bit on regional economy and of course isn't there a lot going on in the general economy and um, speaking today on the 12th of May as we release our winter edition, um, I guess there's lots of themes within Agri that haven't changed a lot but I guess one key thing is that we were starting to hear more and more about the, the likelihood of certainly moving out of the La Nina wetter weather pattern um, to more neutral territory and even talk and even fear uh, from some of moving towards El Nino. And, uh, and I think that part of the equation wouldn't become clear typically until we're closer to the middle of the year where the models might provide a bit more, the weather models might be a bit more um, certain in their predictions. But you know, with all that talk about things being a bit drier again, uh, we've probably had a surprisingly good and timely autumn break. So, um, you know, I think confidence therefore around our industry is quite mixed where people don't like to think that things will be bad just because things are being good for a little bit. Um, but with the weather warning on everybody's mind, we're still contemplating a really great cracking sort of start in so many places, which I think we'll see, uh, you know, a lot of crop go in on time and in, in great condition as we come into winter. And that would boost our overall prospects for yield and um, profitability in farming this year still. So uh, we'll see. But I, I think the, the bookends of getting a great start and getting a finishing spring are critically important and we've got one of those two pieces uh, coming together pretty well in a lot of the key growing areas in the Australian landscape uh, for now. So that should see us into winter pretty well. A um, bit of rain probably required in some parts still to consolidate the break that we've had and um, and that's a close that's a close watch because the thing that we'd also been talking about around the weather was the fact that commodity prices are in general off their highs. Um, we've seen costs spike, but have settled back to mm, pre-COVID or spike kind of levels in a lot of ways. So um, costs are still higher. And of course, labour being a critical element within that, still hard to find, still very expensive compared to where it had been. But things like fertiliser, chemical, um not not or they are off their peak so um so things are finally balanced perhaps but i think we can probably agree that we're now sort of living past the peak of things as in things at their best and um what would what should we expect around that um is it, still a little a little hard to see so um, but, but it feels like we're past that. Um, what is also becoming evident within that cost for those that um, that borrow money is that interest rates are now an actual feature of um, today's 
costs and the cost line in in uh, farming uh, P&Ls as opposed to something that was probably coming uh, very soon. And the reality, reality of that is, of course, that you have uh, less surplus income to spend and reinvest uh, and so on than, than what we'd um, been used to. So interest rates are here. Um, Adelaide speaks of the interest rate market, you know, still having a little bit left in it, um, but probably not much more. And then a question of for how long. And so looking forward the next couple of years, I think uh, for those that haven't sort of um, fixed or hedged their interest rate uh, risk, um, you'll see significantly higher numbers coming through uh, than what we'd seen in the last two or three years. So um, these are some of the features I think that uh, pretty interesting for farming at the moment, but let's hope that uh, the winter is relatively kind and we can go into spring and uh, any kind of rain there would hopefully keep our crops and pastures moving along nicely. On that, with so much happening, it's my pleasure to introduce Adelaide Timbrell. Uh, take it away. Thanks, Adelaide. Thanks, Mark. So in the economy, what we've seen lately is a lot of new data um, particularly around the key policy issue, which is inflation. So first, the actual inflation data. Um, we saw that in Q1, uh, it did rise by 1.4% over the quarter or 7% over the year. Now, 7% is still a very big number compared to the 2 to 3% that we're always aiming for, but much lower than the 7.8% we saw through the year to Q4 2022. Now, when we dig into the data, what we see is that goods that we can easily trade between other countries, uh, as well as physical products, are both seeing inflation decelerate really, really nicely. But services inflation is still very high and doesn't seem to be coming down really much at all. So what that tells us is that there's still enough excess demand in the Australian economy. There's still too much money and spending flowing around versus what businesses can keep up with. And it means that businesses are still able to pass on any cost increases onto customers or even in some instances, increase their profit margins as well. So what that's telling us is that the local behaviour on the grounds in Australia is still contributing to too high inflation. And that means the Reserve Bank has an incentive to uh, either keep rates the same or raise them and really no incentive in the short term to cut rates. So we do think the Reserve Bank will raise uh, the interest rate one more time. We're picking that that will happen in August right after the fresh inflation data comes out in July. Now, the federal budget came out um, on the 9th of May and that showed us, uh, you know, a lot of the increased economic growth um, compared to what the government thought would happen last year and has really reduced budget deficits. But it hasn't reduced the budget deficit or the net government debt we expect in the future because they're spending less, but actually because we are uh, giving them more or there's more revenue going into the government due to a stronger economy. And although we hate inflation in the private sector for households for long-term well-being, it's actually really great for tax revenue and that's helped as well. So when we look at the federal budget policy measures, what we saw was very targeted cost of living relief. So 
when you give most people or a big chunk of people in the economy extra money, what they do is they like to spend a bit of it. And that actually adds to the imbalance between how much businesses can provide us and how much we want to spend. We don't want to add to that imbalance because that's really one of the big drivers of inflation. So what we saw was cost of living relief really is only going to actually affect the hip pockets of you know, the most vulnerable in our community rather than a more widespread approach, really good for inflation and balancing out that uh, social services aspect. I think what was not in the budget, which was really, really good for inflation as well, was anything exciting around big new construction projects or other big government spending measures. It was a modest budget. They were very careful not to put too much extra spending in there. In fact, over the five-year forward estimates, we got $146 billion of extra expected revenue, but only $20 billion of extra expected spending. And that spending is mostly around structural pressures, which we really can't kind of not spend money on, including things like aged care, defence and interest payments. When we look at government debt in total, it does get worse every year. There's a budget deficit, which is every year but this year. But when we look at it as a percentage of GDP in regards to how much interest payments we're making, that's still pretty low compared to other economies and not too much of a concern. So pretty neutral budget. It's not going to help inflation, but it's not going to hurt inflation, which means that our RBA call stays around the same. We're still expecting a relatively weak Australian dollar through the year, maybe getting up to the early 70s um, as we get to the end of the year. So not a lot of change on the FX side. And when we look at um, the Australian risk of recession compared to other countries, still very low. We do think the New Zealand that New Zealand will hit recession uh, sometime in the next 12 months, but we really don't see that for Australia. So we are seeing a soft landing, less Um, interest rate hikes in total than we see in other countries and a lot less of that um, economic pain than what we see elsewhere, partly because we are sheltered from some forms of inflation and partly because the Reserve Bank, unlike other central banks, is going to be taking those high interest rates at 4.1, which we think will be the peak, and leaving them there for much longer rather than going up really quickly and then coming down really quickly. So good news is we're not going to get as high in the interest rates Bad news is they are going to stick around for longer than what we expect in those other countries. Adelaide, one question on labour. It's a much talked about issue within the economy, the level of employment, even labour costs. What's your take on on labour? So we expect that the labour shortage or the very elevated amount of demand for jobs will continue. When we look at the ANZ Indeed Job Ads Index, we're seeing the number of job ads is 52.5% higher than it was pre-pandemic. Job vacancies are also still very strong. And so what that means is even as the economy slows down through this year and next, and some businesses do think twice about whether they need to hire more people, the unemployment rate is going to stay low and the labour market is going to stay tight. We're also expecting wage growth to actually accelerate over this time on average because it does tend to take a while for wages to speed up, but then it also takes a while for wages to slow down as the labour market becomes less tight. Thanks. Thanks very much, Adelaide. Um, Well, I guess we could call that good news perhaps to look forward to in in all of this. It's been a pretty fast-paced environment and, um, yeah, let's hope that uh, we can have the right kind of landing so that we can get on with growth without creating too much hardship for everyone in our economy.
With that, I might introduce Michael to run through a few commodities and um, I think we'll start with beef and hasn't that been a um, an interesting market in the last couple of months? We uh, are off our highs and sort of dipping below some of our key um, three and five year averages. So I think um, a lot of interest in this, Michael. What are we seeing happening and where might it go from here? Thanks, Mark. Um, you're absolutely right. Beef uh, is facing a, an interesting winter, but uh, life in the beef industry is always interesting. As you say, we've seen prices come off those record highs. Uh, the beef industry is wondering about how much consumers might change their buying behaviours with their steaks, uh, with the mints and sausages and other things uh, if living conditions and uh, cost of living gets tighter. And also looking at the, the global competition. Look, on the price point, that's probably the biggest talking point because we saw prices get to that almost record high when that well, very much the record high when the Eastern Young Cattle Indicator hit almost the 1200 cents a kilo mark in January 2022. And if we look in perspective, it, for it to go from 700 cents, which was thought high at the time, up to that record mark took 21 months. And then it slid back down again to below the 700 cents in 15 months. So there is one school of thinking that that's been a big price slide. But the point you make is absolutely correct, that those were abnormal highs. That was a peak uh, and a period when it was well above the averages. Uh, if you're looking at uh, prices in cattle and if you're making your own strategies, you work on long-term averages uh, for planning your operation. And it was a period when times were good if you were selling. Uh, in many ways, this has now been an inevitable correction back to where prices uh, really are, where people maybe expected they were going to be in the longer term. Uh, why has this happened? Uh, perhaps we've reached that level of optimal supply um, and we're seeing more cattle back on the market now. The uh, the impetus for restocking has gone out of the market now that people have restocked post-drought. The intense competition between restockers, uh, feedlotters and processors has also gone out. So the market has in a way come back to the normal period that it should be at. Uh, perhaps the other thing, and going back to what you were saying about the weather as well, that level of uncertainty and some of those thoughts about a potentially drier few months, particularly a, a drier winter, spring and into summer, means that perhaps a number of producers are thinking they may reduce their carrying capacity, well, reduce their stocking rates um, and get things down so they don't find themselves caught without the right amount of feed or the right amount of water going forward. Thank you. And isn't it a an interesting one where judging that difference in price around the tension between the demand in the market and the, the farmer or grazier restocker demand, I think that certainly helped um, push prices to the peaks. But what do we make of, well, is the demand there? I think it feels like it is, but there's also that processing capacity factor at play, isn't there? There absolutely is. And we've talked about labour before as being one of the things that has constrained uh, processor capacity. We're hearing some uh, relatively good news there that some of the processors and the feedlotters for that matter too are saying that labour is starting to come back. 
far from perfect, but uh, whether it's the transitional labour coming through, uh, whether it's migrant labour, a lot of the Pacific Islander labour, that that is starting to pick up. In terms of the demand, well, that's certainly still strong. Consumer demand may change as cost of living gets tighter. Um, it may change from the finer steaks to more mints, and the supermarkets are reporting this too. But on the other side, that export demand remains really strong. And we have to talk about the fact that with restocking having uh, been so strong and with the supply of cattle back on the market, we are also seeing strong growth in exports, which is good news for the processors. And that feeds back through the feedlotters and to the producers as well. And that growth has been uh, particularly strong in South Korea, which has almost become our biggest market. Um, it's been good into China as well. And another side is the US, because the US beef herd and cattle herd has gone down. Uh, the US has needed more of our beef, so that's been strong. So absolutely, demand is remaining a, a strong force in the industry. Great to hear. Thank you. I might uh, switch over to sheep and wool now. And um, those markets have been a bit variable of late as well. And some difficulties uh, bringing uh, especially heavy lamb to, to market through a sort of cooler finish to the spring last year. But that could be levelling out. And, and hopefully we're starting to see a bit more demand return uh, to our key markets like China and, and even into mutton. But uh, for more on that, uh, I welcome Elena Barrett. Thanks, Elena. Thanks very, very much, Mark. Thanks for the intro. And um, I wish I had a far more positive story to be telling about sheep today on the back of what we've just heard uh, regarding beef. Um, but unfortunately, our red meat markets do tend to follow um, largely a similar trend. So um, as we sit here in um, early winter 2023, the downward trend of our sheep and lamb prices sort of largely continues uh, as the market's grappling with these key driving forces of supply, quality, export demand, and also throw in a bit of processor capacity constraint in there as well. Uh, we know we've seen several consecutive years of really buoyant price growth, notwithstanding a few dips along the way. Um, so this now feels like a really quite protracted price correction or, or downward trend. And perhaps um, I was thinking it might be best understood and put into context by just taking a little step back, briefly summarising the path of how we got to today. Uh, and hopefully that helps us to understand where we might be heading in the future. Uh, so we all know that Australian sheep producers really benefited this past decade by growing global demand for both lamb and, and mutton sheep meat. And the OECD put a figure on that for the period 2011 to 21. Uh, and they've come out and said the global consumption of sheep meat actually went up by 21% over that decade. So quite a significant amount. And much of this growth was in the low value and developing nations from an export value point of view, but to our great benefit. It was also matched by growth in the developed countries. Um, and as this long-term and safe producer of quality sheep meat with our large exportable volumes, we were such um, so well-placed uh, to take this opportunity. And it's really exactly what our producers did. Um, then the drought came along, and the eastern seaboard in particular, and we were met by a big flock liquidation, dropping huge numbers out of the system. Um, but what we saw, that demand was so strong that our prices held firm. So this allowed producers some options. Uh, they were able to keep core breeding stock, uh, afford to feed them through uh, or limit that liquidation somewhat, 
or they were also able to, you know, put that money aside and be financially uh, in a position to really rapidly restock once the drought broke. And uh, for the most part, we think that's that's what occurred. And to put that into context, we've added about 15 million head to our national flock since the lowest point during the drought. And that's just been over three short years. So a really rapid and sustained uh, increase in our flock number. So this coupled with some growth in world economies and return to the good seasons, it fed this local and international demand for our sheep and our sheep meat. And now here we are in the early sort of to mid-2023 period and our flock growth had stabilised. Some would argue it's reached its sustainable limit because we're seeing supply pressure uh, starting to be experienced across particularly certain categories of sheep, but really um, affecting, affecting all categories across the board to some extent. So I thought I might just go through today each of those few factors that are pressuring our price, just so we can sort of better understand where they're sitting. So the first one's supply, and we've seen the throughput of both sheep and lambs through sale yards and over the hooks trending considerably higher so far in 23. Uh, our national slaughter data is probably the best uh, indication of this, capturing everything that's processed. And through to early May, it's at a staggering 50% more for mutton uh, in terms of the number of sheep processed from the same period last year. This is over a million head uh, of additional processing uh, since uh, last year, or sorry, for the same period last year. And when we look at the lamb data, we're at about 8% more lambs or 500,000 head. Um, on top of, of the actual slaughter data yardings of the restocker, the lighter type animals are also consistently high week on week. So what that's um, pointing to is that a high supply of heavier lambs is likely through the winter, perhaps early spring. Um, perhaps this will... Um, been dependent a little bit on the weather throughout the next few months, um, but we do expect that this high supply will continue. And if we were to look back at trends over the prior decade, we would see that the supply of sheep and lambs would normally actually dip through this winter, winter period, but the market generally anticipates that this just might not occur in 23, uh, which is just going to contribute to that price pressure and also you know, be particularly sensitive if we happen to get uh, dry enough conditions to cause people to uh, get out of stock earlier than they would have otherwise. The next factor to consider is quality. Uh, so we continue to see sort of two markets, if you like, one for heavy, well-finished animals still um, trending downward, but holding up a better, in better shape uh, than our lighter and less finished animals. So the discount at the moment in early May at the time of recording, uh, it's around 250 cents per kilo between a heavy lamb and a lighter restocker lamb. It's a really stark comparison to where we were 12 months ago uh, into May last year, where your lighter categories of sheep were on par, if not actually trading at a premium to your heavy lambs. And that was just indicating uh, that really heavy restocker uh, demand and also export demand at that time. So I think this can be taken as a strong signal that flock growth has perhaps stabilised. We've got far less demand for those restocker and light type sheep. Uh, and really, it's the only the, the heavy and the well-finished animals attracting uh, the decent prices through the yards or over the hooks. Turning now to exports and uh, a more positive story, um, exports through to the end of April, um, tracking exceptionally well year on year, uh, which is great news for uh, demand going forward. And considering also that 2022 was actually a record export year. 
So lamb exports overall, they're up 5% for the year to April, and this was largely driven uh, by China, 30% year-on-year increase in such a large market. But a huge uptick in a smaller market also of South Korea, 50% uh, and 32% through to the UAE. So those are sort of the notable uh, increases over that period. Uh, and the overall 5% increase year to date has been seen despite significant drags coming out of the US market for lamb. We've got exports to the US down 23% year on year through to April. Um, and that's really significant on two fronts. Firstly, the US has since about May um, 2020 or June perhaps been Australia's largest export market by volume. So it overtook China at that time to become our largest export market by volume. Um, but it's also importantly a really high value market. The import prices into the US are at times more than double that of uh, China on a per kilo basis. So the value of that market um, really plays a big part in the overall export value of Australian lamb. Um, but what we're about to see, um, we expect, is that in the June quarter data for 23, uh, that China export volumes will overtake uh, and outpace exports to the US as that US economy sort of slows and consumer spending on what is a niche product there um, will soften. Positive news, though, for the US market is mutton imports. So uh, we've seen a 20% increase in mutton imports through to the US over that same period. So while they're taking less lamb, they're taking more mutton, albeit it's a much smaller uh, base that they're starting from. Um, but perhaps a positive trend in that the US consumer may have developed a lasting taste for sheep meat and they're simply switching to a lower value product as opposed to seeking you know, a complete alternative to sheep meat. So we'll look to the future data as to whether that continues, but I think overall that's quite a positive sign um, in what is not otherwise a great story. Um, but another good story for mutton, and we did see prices respond along with this, was a major recovery in the China mutton uh, import market, 77% year on year. So a massive increase through to April, uh, and we'll watch, uh, interested in what the next lot of data suggests for China's um, mutton imports as well. Uh, another really positive factor coming forward for exports that many of you will have seen, it's the finalisation of the Australia-UK FTAs. It's going to be known as the AUK FTA. And for sheep meat, we'll see volumes increase from 25,000 tonnes um, tariff-free in year one through to 75,000 uh, tonnes in year 10. Uh, these are really generous volumes in comparison to what we've historically exported to the UK. We've averaged around 9,500 tonnes for the period 2020 to 2022. So if we were to see our uh, sheep meat exports through to the UK reach anywhere near those um, tariff levels, um, I think we would be doing very well in that market. Uh, and importantly, similar to the US, the UK is uh, a really high value market. It's actually higher value again than the US. So the average price of Australian sheep meat um, exported to the UK last year was a little over $11 per kilo. And it's that's running around 10% higher than the US export price for the same period. So overall, uh, hugely positive news for the sheep industry and could be um, particularly beneficial in that high value market. So we'll turn now to price and what it all means uh, for the price received by our sheep producers. We've got the drags of supply, we've got softer export demand from the US and we've got varying quality of sheep 
on offer. Uh, and these three things are tipped to continue through the winter months, even into spring, particularly forecasts for dry weather come to fruition. Um, our export demand for lamb and sheep, it's arguably the single most important factor to watch in price outcomes in this heavy supply environment. We've done a bit of analysis uh, on the links between uh, export demand and price, and it suggests that export volumes over the past 10 years or so are carrying what we would consider a moderate to strong correlation uh, with um, heavy lamb indicator prices. And what we've done there is just for allow for a two month lag in how we calculate that price versus the export volume. So overall that volume of supply and the local conditions will be the other two important factors to watch. Um, and that comes along with quality. At the minute, we've got the heavy lamb indicator sitting at sort of the mid to high 600 cent mark. Um, there still remains ample profit in the sheep production system for producers at that price. Um, but our message, I think, uh, is around cost of production uh, and watching um, those and how they're creeping up in what is a higher cost environment than what we've previously been in. But also trading risk um, would be wisely sort of carefully considered in what is generally a softer market. Um, so we'll watch with bated breath as to what the next few months um, uh, bring forward for us with sheep meat. Turning to wool, the EMI, the moment Eastern market indicator, sitting at around 1,310 cents, 1,310. Uh, the average so far for the year is uh, 1,315 cents. So really it hasn't fluctuated much um, at all. If you chart that over the year, it's quite a flat looking line. Um, but against the average for 2022, we are slightly softer. It was 1385. So we do generally remain in a softer wool market. Uh, and that's sort of mirrored by reports from the auction rooms, which sort of speak of weaker demand. Uh, and it's sort of keeping any real shift in pricing from being a reality, I would say, at this point in time. Um, but as usual, I think we need to turn to the individual micron price guides to tell the real story as opposed to the overarching um, EMI. So the 19 to 22 micron categories continue to perform the most strongly compared to last year's prices. They're all at least um, on par or above with the levels um, seen last year. And we're talking around 1,600 cents um, for the 19 sort of micron categories through to perhaps 1,400 cents or so, uh, the 22 micron category. Our super fine wool types are trending a bit lower than, than the prior year, uh, but still returning upwards of 1,900 cents. So still, you know, a reasonable price in historic terms. And they have been more sought after in recent weeks uh, by top makers, particularly low vegetable matter types. But Sadly, those broader types for all our cross-bedded composite producers, that 26 to 30 micron wool is not doing a great deal, um, not a lot of demand, still hovering at around the 350 cent mark. Um, in some cases, perhaps even struggling to repay the ever-increasing cost of shearing. So uh, through um, our intelligence, we now believe that uh, the cost of shearing is up to nine, if not ten dollars a head for full contract. Uh, so re to return that ten dollar cost uh, with these broader wools, um, you'd really need to be cutting uh, at least a four, if not four and a half kilogram fleece, perhaps seventy percent yield. Um, getting um, it look possible, um, but it's not going to be possible in every case, depending on where you are and what conditions you're in. In terms of wool volumes in the market, um, it. Throughput is largely the same as 2022. So far, we've seen around one and a half million bales uh, processed through the auction system. 
the Australian Wool Forecasting Committee in late April recently updated their forecast for total wool production for the season, uh, and it's sitting at around 324 million kilograms greasy. This is uh, hardly up at all on last year, 1% or so, and perhaps also signalises um, a stabilising in the national flock. In positive signs for improvement in market demand for wool in the near term, uh, the chairman of AWI has come back from a recent visit to China, uh, noting uh, considerable investment in processing capacity, um, which sounds like it must be a positive sign. There's also been some significant recovery recovery, sorry, in wool apparel imports in some major northern hemisphere markets, and that includes Japan, the US, Germany, France, South Korea, the UK and Italy. So all of those nations have actually um, surpassed their pre-COVID wool apparel import levels with the exception of Japan and the UK. So positive signs for um, the demand for wool at the consumer level in the Northern Hemisphere, which is such important markets. Um, but as we know, China's domestic demand is vital uh, so much of our wool is not only processed in China but consumed there and worn there but by Chinese people, uh, and it's far more difficult to predict. So we've got a lack of available data. Um, but look, a lessening shipping backlog and increasing processor capacity are, are surely positive signs for at least a stable market in the longer term. Thanks for that, Elena. Much appreciated. Uh, Michael, I might go back to you now if I can. And uh, fantastic time of year to start to see a bit of crop come out of the ground. Um, let's look at the grain markets, please. Absolutely. You're right. It is that interesting time of year for your winter crop growers right around Australia. Uh, depending on what the crop is, they will either still be sowing. Um, some of it may be coming out of the ground. And if you're going for a later planting crop like canola, uh, perhaps even some growers are still evaluating and still at a point in time where they are thinking about what might be going in. So, And then facing that period ahead uh, over the winter when keeping an eye on the weather, keeping an eye on prices such as uh, herbicides, fungicides and others to see where the crop goes. Um, things are looking good, which is different from when things were looking absolutely wonderful over the last couple of years. So if we talk about the fact that there is a forecast for crop production to come down around 20, 27%, according to ABES, that would still make it Australia's fifth biggest harvest ever. And a lot can happen between now and the time of harvest uh, when that all comes out. As with every other industry in agri, uh, cattle, sheep and every other, there is that eye on the weather. That is that thought that if things uh, get drier, if there's less rain than has been normal over the last couple of years, uh, then that could impact crop conditions going forward as well. But uh, that remains to be seen. One point that ties in positively for a lot of grain producers also has been that fall in fertiliser prices since their peak around the time of the Ukrainian crisis starting. So that that has made the cost situation better for a lot of producers. And in a way, they'll really need that this year because after two really intensive years of cropping um, with the bumper crops and also taking advantage of the high prices, uh, the soil will need a lot of replenishment. So we may see a lot of fertiliser purchasing uh, going on to the year. And look, the other side is on exports. Exports also remain very strong. 
They are running at record pace at the moment and particularly led by China. China is on a massive global grain purchasing program at the moment uh, for a number of reasons, uh, particularly driven by feed um, and also domestic food usage and brewing usage as well. So that is keeping things strong there. Uh, finally, prices. And as with cattle in a way too, prices have come off those very high peaks and in grain they were driven particularly by global uncertainty after the Ukraine crisis started and worries about securing and procuring so much grain. Uh, so they've come down to almost around two-year lows from where they were, uh, but still at reasonably good levels. Yeah, and, and prices moving around a bit, so we don't like to get caught up in the day-to-day -day of things. But I guess what we've been used to seeing in our period of you know, fantastic crops and outcomes is the opposite in the Northern Hemisphere where crop growth had been poor. Um, and then you add the volatility that comes from a slightly thinner trade and the issues of moving grain out of the Black Sea region. Um, how do you reconcile those couple of things? Are we anticipating a, a bigger supply coming on from, from the Northern Hemisphere? And I guess volatility still has to be a continuing feature as long as we've still got the Russian invasion playing out in Ukraine, doesn't it? That is absolutely right. On one hand, look, positive signs if you are a grain producer in the Northern Hemisphere and particularly North America. Canada, for example, is forecasting its biggest wheat crop in 22 years. After bad weather there over the past year or two, they're looking at good weather. So that's good news for them. That does uh, have a bearish omen for prices. More grain coming onto world markets means there's less worry about being able to secure it so prices go down. That's on one hand. On the other hand, you are completely right about the Russians as well. They continue to make it clear that even though there's a current agreement for grain to come out of Ukraine, supervised uh, in a joint program between Ukraine, Russia, Turkey and the United Nations, Russia says that they reserve the right to stop that if they're not happy with conditions uh, and things going forward. And that may mean that that grain stops coming out and that could push prices up again. So that volatility remains there. The market it's not complacent. It's just slightly more relaxed than it was, but definitely keeping one eye on that side of things. Thanks, Michael. Plenty of variables there for everyone to keep watching. Um, maybe turning our mind to inputs, you just touched on fertiliser prices then. Um, do we just want to talk quickly about where we see the input side of, of cropping, um, particularly as it relates to fertiliser and um, well, what we're seeing, what we're expecting, but also what might drive farmer sort of um, practice at the end of the day as to how much goes out and um, and the balance perhaps between uh, phosphate and nitrogen. Over to you on that, please. Look, absolutely. And in brief, and we write about this in more detail uh, in our latest report, uh, the good news is for Australian farmers that prices have come down. Uh, fertiliser prices are driven by global factors primarily, uh, whether it's export restrictions, whether it's input prices, and the fact that the export restrictions uh, have come off in a number of markets. The fact that the surge in gas prices, which whether in the US were caused by storms and plants being 
shut down or in Europe caused by the Ukraine crisis, they've also really come down, has seen fertilizer prices and urea prices really come off the boil. Um, another side to it too is that Australia, despite the fact having sourced uh, and therefore perhaps uh, found some worries about getting its fertilizer, particularly from China in the past and some other major markets, is now looking to a range of other markets. So that is good news. That really means that uh, uh, so much of the worry of that side of costs and availability has come out. Uh, as far as usage of different fertilizers, yes, as we talked about, uh, particularly with the grain story, there will be a need for so many producers around Australia to reevaluate and this winter have a look at what their fertilizer mix will be, uh, whether that is having to uh, replenish the soil after two bumper crops, whether for livestock producers, if they are looking to the fact that it may be a dry winter what they're going to want to put out on their pastures to keep them at optimal level. Uh, there will be a lot of thinking about that and a lot of farmers working with their agronomists and their fertiliser suppliers. Yes, thank you for that. Well, great to see some easing in prices and um, availability for, for this season. So um, hopefully there's relief there if we've got some other cost pressures that are maybe still... Um, um, representative in in our in our farmers cost lines so uh now we might turn to daring if we can and we've seen a really good run on prices at the farm gate which has been fantastic for for dairy farming um and uh a place of fascination right now uh, i guess in the processing market and the way that opening prices would be delivered to our dairy farmers come July 1. What are we thinking about dairy? Look, dairy remains interesting for dairy farmers, as you say, whether it's the farm gate prices or the global dairy trade prices, they remain high. So that is a very good side of the market and the demand remains strong for dairy products on a global basis. Once again, uh, sometimes dairy is one of those things that you look at how much it might change from a consumer demand point if you go into tighter economic conditions. Uh, but milk is a staple, cheese is a staple, butter is a staple. So that demand will be there. Some of the varieties may change, um, but, but that's looking strong. The challenge with the dairy industry continues to be the decline in terms of the national milking herd, in terms of the number of dairy farms, uh, and in a way, long term, what this will mean for milk production in Australia. Yield continues to go up and it's forecast to go up. Uh, how long it can do it for will remain a big question. Uh, but if the decline continues and if uh, some dairy farmers choose to sell to beef producers, sell to horticulture, cultural producers, then it does raise an important discussion in the industry going forward about can Australia keep the same level of processing, the same number of processing facilities, uh, what it will mean for the amount of milk going to the retail level. And for example, we're increasingly seeing perhaps even big supermarkets negotiating directly with dairy farmers, uh, what it might mean for integration up the supply chain from retailers as well. And perhaps even uh, do we look at importing milk sometime in the future as an option if that decline continues? Uh, but as you say, for the time being, dairy farmers looking to a, a reasonable opening price when things happen in the middle of the year. Um, and the season, the rain, rain has been good in so many dairy areas. So that's another positive right now. 
Yeah, thanks. Let's let's hope it's a good opening price that um, keeps farm profitability and reinvestment alive and well, um, and and one that also allows the processes to um, operate profitably, so that um, we're both going to market well right through the supply chain, not just at one end or the other. But you know, farmers do need that that incentive, don't they? Because clearly. Uh, we're struggling with total domestic milk pool, um, fewer operators producing more, but um, at some point, yes, that can create other issues as um, we're invested for a much bigger milk pool. And um, even the, I don't know, what do you think? I mean, we, is there a danger in becoming a much more predominant domestic industry as opposed to an outward looking export industry? Because that's changed a lot over the last four or five years. It's an interesting point, and whether it's a danger or whether it's a necessity as well, um, there will always be that demand there uh, from supermarkets around Australia. One of the interesting economic points is that when over 60% of milk uh, comes out of Victoria, but it's nationally in demand, uh, how some of the stakeholders in the supply chain continue to adapt to that. For example, uh, in terms of dairy products getting to Western Australia and into Perth, particularly when the number of dairy farms in, in Perth uh, or in West Australia is smaller than ever, that'll be an interesting one as to whether there is need to develop them over there, what the transport costs may add, what the processing facilities over there may be. Uh, same with Queensland too. The other side of it is Tasmania. And if you look at the figures broken down by state, Tasmania is the only state that is showing growth in terms of the milking herd and in terms of milk production. So very interesting to watch what will happen there, not just with farmers, uh, but with the processors and investors who may be looking at the long-term potential for building that up. So a lot to happen in the industry. Radio, great. Yes, thank you, Michael. Um, we just might turn our attention now to the regional economy. And of course, it's very close to our hearts in, in agribusiness. Um, agri is a critical component to regional landscapes and, and regional economies. And of course, agri has been going incredibly well through higher prices and um, and profitability and great production years. So no doubt that's been feeding really strongly into local economies, although it can be a bit hard to see where that exactly translates. Um, but one thing that uh, the COVID pandemic did highlight, I think, was that it or it actually shone a light on, on regional. And um, whilst uh, the cities uh, really battled in both uh, living conditions and lockdowns and, and business conditions through those lockdowns. You know, regional experienced that as well, and it was most evidently felt perhaps through the, the border towns where we had a whole range of um, different state regulations uh, playing out and restricting movements. But by and large, the regional economy kept moving on, and, um, it, you know, it, it it was a demonstration, I think, of the importance of diversity in our economy to have the internal um, sort of geographic component of our, of our our economy moving really well still, and also around population distribution, um, the wide open spaces of regional um, that many have long um, recognised as a fantastic uh, lifestyle and business opportunity to be out in the regions, but. Um, the less dense populations, of course, meant that regional 
regional was able to operate more effectively um, through what was otherwise a, an incredibly difficult time managing populations in our city. So the Australian Bureau of Statistics um, released a range of numbers and I think uh, without dwelling too heavily on the detail for the for the listening audience, um, when we looked at employment growth numbers and and wages growth and and population growth, there's a few things. One is that the regional economy performed particularly well through the COVID period, um, and indeed within agri, even we saw. Uh, a significant contribution from the uh, agri-forestry and fishing sector to GDP growth in that sort of 20 to 22 period. Um, but we also saw leading into the COVID period, so from that to the 2015 period through to 2020, we're already starting to see signs of a pretty robust regional economy and a bit of a shift. And often we think about people shifting rural and regional on the basis of lifestyle. But I think it's also highlighting that there are many well-invested um, business and growth opportunities out in regional as well that, that has a high demand for labour, um, is involved in some really specialist and, and profitable enterprise. And those things are becoming more evident. Um, and one thing that the, the COVID pandemic brought about um, was, of course, this new world of workplace flexibility. And in some ways, as people are able to better access technology and communication and even transport links and things to make living um, uh, an easier um, potential and possibility out in the regions, um, it kind of has meant the same thing for workers in the cities who now can spend more time at home and in the suburbs, perhaps in the way that they go about their work and whether they, these were the same people that might have otherwise moved regionally or not, it's a bit hard to tell. But I think that ongoing notion of workplace flexibility um, is an ace perhaps for the attractiveness of, of many of the regions. Now, now, one thing that has been coming through in some of the numbers has been that the migration, if you like, from cities tends more heavily towards the regional cities as opposed to regional and more rural uh, town settings. And there's all kinds of anecdotal stories around this, but I think what's playing out, there's obviously been a bit of hub sort of centralization in the, in the states where bigger regional cities have um, benefited perhaps from uh, a consolidation of, of smaller towns really running out of services and population but these bigger regional cities have become really vibrant places to live and work um, they uh, have great and improved services and facilities and infrastructure so education schools hospitals etc there's more examples today i think in regional cities uh, where you can enjoy a very urban-like lifestyle but still be in that sort of country regional community. Um, obviously, there's challenges around all of this because I don't think anyone's suggesting for a moment that um, the infrastructure needs around health and education in particular are, are at all met for the demand that actually exists in regional. But um, by comparison and where uh, from where we've been before, I think that looks a lot healthier today in regional than it had in the past. Um, the other thing, I guess, is that 
uh, when it comes to population growth, it tends towards the regional cities that are still close to the big cities and um, the smaller states of, of Victoria, uh, Tasmania and to a point uh, South Australia benefit strongly from this in regional and um, the more, into the bigger states and the more regional and, re, and rural and remote you go, um, the less benefits are seen in the stats around population, uh, wages and employment growth. So I, I think uh, this story as people read the production will be one of, hey, there are great opportunities in regional, regional's doing really well. Um, it was performing well leading into the pandemic. Um, it proved a, a great piece of resilience for the Australian economy as the pandemic took place. Um, but I don't think it's a case that everyone then reverts back to city living post COVID. Um, there seems to be a sustainable uh, world of, of new living and opportunities in regional. And I think that's really positive um, for our broader economy and our own population. And so let's keep an eye on that over the coming years. And, um, and let's hope that um, that there are really great opportunities for business and people outside of the city so that, heaven forbid, should we find ourselves towards any kind of pandemic in the future, um, we still have a strong and robust regional economy that will serve our country well. Um, Michael, I'll hand over to you for any feeling or comment that you might have on this, even anecdotally from your travels. and. Um, and maybe get your thought. Do you think that um, do you think that the new world order is going to see a, a resettling back to where we were before pre-COVID, or is this a real opportunity for regional? Do you think to come out the other side better than ever? Mark, I, I'd go with your second one. I have to say, it's always fascinated me when you compare Australia and the US, countries basically the same size, but for so many years, we took for granted that we had six or so big cities uh, and the regionals were just so different, whereas the US, yes, a bigger population, but a model where it had a number of major cities in every, every state and right across the country where the commercial side of things was there, where where the universities were there, uh, and that's a huge draw card in, in society as well, um, where the transport was great between all of them. And we really positively now, and as our paper shows, really do see ourselves heading in that direction. Uh, a huge part of it is that the services and opportunities are out there, um, the education side, the health side, the manufacturing side, and agriculture absolutely ties into this. So we are seeing that fundamental shift. Uh, uh, it is also, as you point out, a quite different state by state. Um, in New South Wales, for example, uh, you do have a, a number of those, those major centres. Uh, Queensland stands out as being, I think, still the only state where not the majority of the population lives in the capital city. Western Australia is different yet again. Uh, after Perth, most of the cities are smaller and really needs a different thought as far as uh, regional development policy and process goes but we absolutely seem to be on the cusp of fundamental change and that really has so many positives about it. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. And and there there are so many positives. I, I guess I guess if we look at part of the challenge and I, and I think when it comes to labor availability um rural and regional has always been a that issue has been more pronounced than in the cities and today we see it as a major problem 
everywhere and it's no more felt than in regional. So on one hand, uh, labour availability is a real thing. And I think anecdotally, when you speak to farming and other businesses in regional locations, it's not a case that everyone who wants a job just has a job and that's that. You've got a lot of businesses who would uh, employ more labour if they could only access labour. So um, that that is a that is a constraint at the moment out there in the regions. And and the another big one, and there's probably many, but um, when we talk about the need for infrastructure and services and so on, um, housing is another major challenge where we do need more labour and there might be project opportunities available, but do we have uh, the homes and, and the industry to support um, a new volume of, of people living regionally? Uh, perhaps not. Are all the settings right for that? Um, perhaps not. So I think there's still a, a great case to be made going forward around not only policy development, but even as um, the private sector thinks to how it can attract and engage with um, bigger and better professional and skilled workforces regionally uh, will be fascinating to see. So, um, yeah, let's watch it with interest and hope uh, another year or so on that we are seeing the sustained growth of regional. That's all we have time for today. Thanks everyone for tuning in. I hope that was a good update for you on a range of key issues. Uh, look forward to seeing you out in the um, in the market in the next little while before our spring edition comes around. So on behalf of Michael, Alana and Adelaide, thank you so much and look forward to seeing you soon.